couple of interesting series um, that we've done at Venture Church. There's been one that was on, you know, end times. It was years and years ago. And then we did this, this one on Revelation. And I think for me, beginning it was I, I realized I had to do a lot of study. So I started like a month ago, just kind of piling together research and reading lots of books, reading lots of commentaries, seeing, by the way, online, <laughs> just be very careful. There's a lot of good information there, but most of it's bad. And uh, so uh, in doing so, one of the things I realized is, is I actually love this book. I really do. And, I, and, I lo- and, I'm, and I'm excited to teach it. But, but uh, I ran across a couple of interesting surveys. One was they asked Christians across the board, followers of Jesus, how, what is the number one book in the Bible that they most want to study? And at the top of the list was the book of Revelation, top of the list. And then the, uh, the other survey was a, uh, of teachers and, and preachers, what is the number one book in the Bible that you least want to teach? And guess what? <laughs> The same book is on both of those lists, the book of Revelation. Revelation is the book that people most want to hear taught, and it's the book that preachers don't want to teach, and it's the book that we embark on today, and I believe that you are going to love this book as much as I do. Now first, the title of the book is Revelation. That's singular. There is no S on the end of it. It's just one Revelation. And second, it's not the revelation of the end times. It's not the revelation of the last days. What it is, is found in the first five words of the book, and that is this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for revelation is the word apocalypsis, apocalypsis. And that word doesn't mean end times. What it actually means is a revealing, an unveiling, an uncovering. And Revelation is the last book in the Bible. So if you want to get to it, uh, open your Bibles. You can open uh, anywhere and just start, start heading right. If you hit something called a concordance, you've gone too far. And uh, so you can open your Bibles or you can uh, read the words. They'll be on the screen. Uh, you can also uh, read your fake Bibles too, either way. Uh, but before we get started, I wanted to give you a summary. Would it be useful if we started with a summary of the book? The summary that I want to give you is this, that God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. That is the summary of the book of Revelation. If you read it with this main point in mind, you will understand. Now, you won't necessarily understand every detail. I don't. But it's not necessary to understand every detail to profit spiritually as we read God's word together. But it's a crucial point that the summary of the book is God rules history and will bring it to its consummation in Christ. And we're going to understand that more as we go along today. My job today is to give you an introduction or an overview of the book. And I'm going to, this is my teaching hat on. So today would be a really good day if you're so inclined to take notes. Now, I offer anytime, you know, you can take notes on my messages, but this would be a really good one. If you don't want to take notes now, if you prefer to do it later, this message will be on the podcast, and you can listen to it. And for those of you listening on the podcast right now, I'd encourage you to press pause, go get your pen, go get some paper, 
and take some notes, okay? Because I'm going to my teaching hat on today. There's going to be some practical application. We'll get to that at the end. But my job is to give you an overview of the letter. Before I do that, let's read together the first eight verses of chapter one, the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I believe that it is one of the most beautiful books in the New Testament. I really do. I didn't start off believing that because when I became a Christian, this book was something mysterious. And if you turn to it, it was to try to figure out what was on TV and world events. And that's the way I saw it until God really began to show me that this is a beautiful picture of the glory of God. But unfortunately, we don't want to read it. We don't want to study it. We don't teach it. Sometimes we don't even open it. But certainly all these words that we just read, right? These are words, these are words for us. So let me begin by saying there's several attitudes toward the books, book of Revelation. Many of you have some of these. And I think they're, they can hinder us in our study. So let's just get them out of the way on the table before we start. Number one, of course, is fear. I, I think this is the number one attitude that some, sometimes people approach the book of Revelation. They're afraid of this book. They're afraid of the imagery. They're afraid of what it alludes to. Things that, that we don't understand tend to terrify us. And, and Revelation falls into that category. We're afraid of the language of it. We're afraid of the symbols inside of it. We're afraid of the creatures. We're terrified of the judgments that are depicted in the book. But that is the wrong attitude. That's the wrong attitude. After all, it's the Word of God. Amen? It's the Word of God. And the entire Word of God, the Bible says, is profitable for us. So our attitude of fear can get in the way of our study. The second attitude is marginalized. We marginalize the book of Revelation. Martin Luther, the great reformer himself, said, and he was wrong on a lot of things. He was wrong on this. He said that the book of Revelation is unedifying for the normal, ordinary believer. He was wrong. He marginalized the book. 
I remember this, the survey I talked about at the beginning where everybody wanted to know, everybody asked questions, everybody asked, this is like, teach us this, and then all the pastors, the teachers, the preachers, there's like Martin Luther, like, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to teach on it. It's too, it's too hard. So it remains what? It rem- remains unopened. It remains unmarked. It remains unstudied. I'm kind of guilty of that. When I looked at, when I started studying about a month ago for this message series, I... I noticed that my Bible, which is full of markings everywhere, when I look in the back of it, and I, and I started to go through Revelation, I noticed that I haven't made any marks. I like very few. Mostly red letter marks, you know. And it, so I'm right there with you if, if you've marginalized the Bible, or marginalized this part of the Bible. So we, we, we have fear, attitudes of fear hinder us. We marginalize. That hinders our study. The third way that we can hinder our study is we begin to look at revelations. We can sensationalize it. We can sensationalize. All of a sudden, instead of a picture book of the story of God, it becomes a puzzle book. And what we do is then we try to find all of these little puzzles and piece them together. We treat it as if it's super mysterious. Ooh, you know, there's all these things going on, moving parts. And the interpretation has to be really precise. It has to fit into... Current events leads us away, though, I think, from the main purpose of the book, which is God rules history, and he brings it to its consummation in Christ. And if we begin with that, then we can fully understand and appreciate the book of Revelation. So in truth, it can honestly be difficult. In spite of that, yes, we have fear. We marginalize, we sensationalize, but it is actually difficult. Why is it so difficult for us? Well, number one, it can be difficult because of the type of literature that it is. Um, It's apocalyptic literature, and there's only one other place in the New Testament where it's sort of a focus on end times. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, but it's unique in that it's the only uh, it's the only book which is primarily apocalyptic literature, and so uh, what, which leads to our difficulty in it, in dealing with that type of literature, because, again, we're New Testament people. I'm just going to say this, and I know that in this room there's, a, there's exceptions to this, but it's mostly true. It's mostly true in, in my experience, and that is that we just don't like the Old Testament. We don't read it. We don't read it because we don't like it. Many, I have found, actually have an aversion to the Old Testament. I'll say things like, well, we're not under law. We're under grace. Uh, the Old Testament is scary. The Old Testament, that's a, well, it must be a different God. That was God, you know, before, um, maybe in his teenage years, you know, he's a little, he's a little mad, kind of a twitch, you know. And then in New Testament, he, Jesus came, and, you know, he had, was God with his medication, you know, and he had it all figured out. He had daisies and sandals and stuff. I mean, he's a good, you know. Uh, but so we need the Old Testament, though. Why do we need it? Because it's the full expression of the Word of God. The overarching theme of Scripture from, ver- from the very beginning in the garden, from the very beginning when we were walking uh, created in God's image in the cool of the day, and then sin entered in and there was a broken relationship. The entire story, the entire narrative of the Bible, all the way through to the other bookend, Revelation is the story of God's redemption. It's the story of a loving God who through trials and tribulations takes his people through the wilderness. He rescue, rescues them from Egypt. He uh, 
he transitions them into a theocracy. And then there's a cycle of disobedience, of rebellion and repentance, and then turning again to idols and going through that whole cycle again over and over and over again. Then they adopt a king. And, and the story of the Old Testament is very, very beautiful as God is preserving his people as a picture of the bride of Christ whom God wants to take to the end preserved faithful to him. It's the whole, what we call the meta-narrative. You're like, you know, I love big words, so that's the word, meta-narrative. You want to write that down and impress your friends. But if we don't have this redemptive historical view of the Bible, we, then what we do is we don't see the Old Testament as Christian literature. So one of the dangerous things that I'm seeing right now is there is there are Christians who are now saying we need to unhitch or uh, to, to pull ourselves away from the Old Testament. I'm here to tell you it's extremely dangerous. W people that say, well, why would we go to the Old Testament as opposed to just staying in the New? So we avoid it. It's difficult, yes. Study is difficult, many of you know. But what does all that have to do with the book of Revelation, Scott? Okay, well, by one count of the 404 verses that, that are in the book, uh, some 500 allusions, depending on which way you count it, uh, some 500 allusions to, you guessed it, the Old Testament. In fact, John alludes to almost every book of the Old Testament. Almost every book, but about 50% of the allusions are to the Psalms, to Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Okay, which is like, we like the Old Testament narratives, you know. We love the stories of David and Goliath, you know, some of the stories of the Exodus and, and maybe, you know, Genesis interests us a little bit. But then for the most part, you know, we get into the Psalms, but only on a per-Psalm basis. Like, when is the last time you heard, you know, a, a study of the Psalms? Like, that would be a, a, a tremendous undertaking, right? Or, or Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. We just don't dive into that uh, part of Scripture. And so what, when John is basically giving us a commentary of the Old Testament, there's more, in fact, there's more Old Testament re references in Revelation than any other book in the New Testament. And so the very types of literature that we're least likely to be familiar with are the types of literature that are most referenced in the book of Revelation. So it's a big problem. The type of literature can be difficult, can make, it's not a problem in, in such that it's a problem that keeps us from studying it, but it makes it difficult as we do study it. So just be aware. It's the type of literature that it is. Got to know your Old Testament. You, we'll get to more of that in just a moment. The second way that it can be difficult is because of the symbols. Admittedly, the symbols are really, really everywhere. So first of all, colors. If you notice how many colors there are in the book, even just in, in chapter 1 as we were reading, you know, uh, if you go to verse 13, it talks about gold lampstands. You know, golden, um, golden sash, just in verse 13. Verse 14, then going on, it says there's white like wool, hairs on his head. So white like wool. Then verse 15, uh, burnished bronze. So his feet are like burnished bronze. There's like, in just three verses, there's gold, there's wool, there's burnished bronze. It's just, in just three verses. And they're all over. It's such a colorful book. If you read the book, just sometimes you sit there and just like go circle all the colors. It's pretty astounding how many there are. What about the... Man, you know, what about the animals? There's a lot of animals in the book, right? There's dragons. There's beasts. There's horses. Oh, my. They're everywhere. There's also eagles. There's frogs. There's lambs. There's lions. There's locusts. 
A lot of locusts. There's vultures. Vultures in the book of Revelation. So many animals. What do they mean? What's the purpose of it? What are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to do with that? It can be difficult because of the symbols. It can be difficult. What are the lampstands all about? You know, what's up with them, right? Even though we're told what they mean, we're not really told exactly what they mean. I mean, if you go to verse 20 in chapter 1, it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, Jesus is, is talking, and he says, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and then the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, that's great. So there's seven lampstands and there's seven churches, but we still don't know why lampstands. What are they about? Do they just hold up candles? What's the purpose of it, right? We've got to understand that as well. And let me give you a hint. When you see these symbols, sometimes John will just explicitly tell you what they are. Seven lampstands, seven churches. It's always helpful, but he doesn't always tell you what things mean. Nine times out of ten, you go back to the Old Testament to find out what they mean. For example, we have to go back to Zechariah 4 to understand lampstands. All right, you can go look that up now if you'd like to. Uh, I'd prefer to just pay attention, however. But go look. I'll give you a hint. What he's talking about in terms of the lampstands is that, that they represent in an incomplete sense, the complete, full uh, expression of, the, of, of the, the building of the temple. So in other words, the lampstands were complete. They were put in, at the beginning of a small thing to indicate that God was going to do something big later. So it adds some beauty and some depth to it. You might not have understood that had you not known to gone back to Zechariah 4 to understand seven lampstands are there as well. Okay, so tons of references to the Old Testament. can be very difficult with the literature. can be very difficult with the symbols. And number three, it can be difficult because of the numbers. There's so many numbers. So many numbers in, in the book. Numbers repeated throughout the book, and they are very important. Sometimes we see the actual number, the number seven. It appears twice in verse four. We read it, seven churches, seven spirits. Then it goes on in verse 11, verse 12, verse 16, verse 20. In fact, six times, just in chapter 1, we see the number 7. Throughout the book, there, seven is everywhere. There are seven churches, seven spirits, seven golden lampstands, seven stars, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven crowns, seven heads, Seven plagues, seven bulls, seven kings, seven hills, 7,000 killed because of an earthquake. Seven is everywhere. What does it represent in the Bible? The number seven represents completeness. It represents completeness throughout the Bible. Complete judgment, complete victory, complete glory, complete praise. That number seven is so important throughout that. There's other important numbers in the book, of course. Uh, the number three is really important, but it's not expressly mentioned. The number three will come to you when you do what John says and you read the book aloud. There's something about reading it aloud that you pick up things. You pick up that there's triads, and sorry to just throw that out there, but there's triads in the text. So when you read it, you'll understand. You'll, you'll hear, you know, who was and is and is to come. You'll see that all over the place in Revelation. Three is an important number. 
Number four is important. Of course, 12 appears everywhere, a number of completeness. 12 is a complete number in the sense of community. 12 is a, is a number that would say in any group of people, 12 represents completeness. How many of y'all have seen the number 144,000 in the Bible? I wondered what that is. What, what is about 144,000? Any of you guys? Really? Nobody? Okay, some people now. Okay, yeah. 144,000. So I'm going to just say this. I feel really comfortable in saying this. It is not a literal number. If you're worried and you've heard that, like it's 144,000, that just means there's only 144,000 Christians, so heaven's probably already populated way long, many centuries ago, and there's no more room for me. Or, you know, you have to be some kind of super-duper Christian to make it into heaven, and I'm not. So that 144,000, that's probably the varsity people, and I didn't make the team. And you get really worried about that. Or some people try to twist it and say, no, that just means like the Israelites, there's 144,000 in the end. And, well, I'm here to tell you this. I'm very confident in saying that it's absolutely not, in no way, a literal number. What is it? Well, 12 re represents completeness. 12, what is, what is 144,000? It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 times 12 times 1,000. So today you and I, I think, we, we've become jaded by numbers, right? We talk about trillions. We, we, we actually have a number, trillions. We spend trillions of dollars of debt. Throw that around. You probably can't even write the number trillion. I mean, you definitely can't think of it in your head. You cannot conceive of something that big. You don't know really what a trillion, we just know it's a lot. Okay, it's a lot of something. We are not wired to think about a trillion. But if you lived as John did in a culture that throws around monopoly kind of numbers, um, a thousand is a huge number. I mean, there were only a handful of cities in the known world at that time that even had a thousand residents in them, if you can believe it, right? And so... So 1,000 is a huge number, and we talk about 144,000, and you talk about 12 times 12 times 1,000, what are they saying? 12 is a completeness of God's people. Remember 12 tribes, 12 disciples. 12 times 12 is a complete completeness of the people of God. Times 1,000. In other words, it's a massive number. It's the complete completeness of God's people times a massive number. So, yes, that can be difficult because of the symbols. It can be difficult because of the numbers. It can be difficult because of the type of literature it is. But we have to take an approach to the book so we can get something out of it. And I'm going to cover some different overarching approaches to the book. I hope this is going to be helpful to you. I know this isn't my normal message. Uh, I, I think this is so good as we launch into this, though. We want to have a firm grasp on it. What are, what are some approaches to the book? Number one is an approach that says everything in Revelation was fulfilled early on in the first century. It's the approach of that which has gone past. If you want the theological position, if you're interested in looking it up, it's called the preterist, P-E-R-P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T -E -E position. And it says that essentially John, went, at the time John wrote the book, that he was looking forward to things that were in the immediate future. And that essentially it's it's done. It's already, it's already been fulfilled. So it's really a book of past history of not a future of, of future events. This position has grown really popular in the last um, decades. And the reason why I believe is, number one, social media carries uh, 
what used to be fringe ideas forward in a way that makes them look mainstream. That's number one. Number two, um, the preterist position does actually f- uh, t- explain quite well some things that are um, uh, fit nicely in it. But there's some incompleteness about it as well. Uh, the main problem with it is, let me just ask you this, see if anybody knows. So use your opportunity to be a smarty pants. Um, so if you were alive in the first century and you were a Jew, uh, if you're in, in Israel particularly, what would be the date, the number one date in that first century that would be the most significant in terms of Jerusalem? What is the date? Anybody have it? How about A.D. 70? A.D. 70. Why, why would that, anybody know why A.D. 70? Okay. Well, there was the destruction of the Jewish temple. So that was the year when the Romans came in and they tore down the walls of the temple and completely laid waste to Jerusalem. They killed uh, over 200,000 people. It was a massive Armageddon-looking type of an experience. And so what this approach to Revelation is to say, that was the apocalypse, and that happened. There's a few problems with that theory. Number one is the date, the traditional date of the book, is around 92 AD. The, you know, the apostle John, John the Beloved, lived longer than almost any other of the apostles, and so he was alive in, in his 90s, in the year about 90-92 uh, AD, and that was, of course, many decades after the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple under Emperor Nero, and in AD 90 was a Domitian, and so there's, that, there's some confusion then around dating if you're going to go with this approach that, that is, which has gone past. The key question with this approach is when did it happen? When did these things happen? And, and so they would believe that it happened A.D. 70. That was the culmination of it. Some, some real problems with that. I'm not going to go into it, but I just want to give you that approach. Number two is the historical approach. And basically there, the idea is that the seven letters to the seven churches, the seven lampstands that we talked about, are seven dispensations throughout history. In other words, that each one of the churches that we're going to study represented a a moment or in history in the church. And so the rest of the book has to be interpreted in light of that. Some of you guys have heard this question, um, where do you think we are now in, in prophecy? Where do you think we are now in the book of Revelation? Anybody heard those questions? Like, like anybody heard, you know, what chapter do you seeing, see as being fulfilled now as we move toward the culmination? And for the people who take this historical approach, the key question is, where are we now in the process of it being unfolded? Like, what horsemen are we in? Or what church are we in? Like, where are we in that dispensation? That's the historical approach. The third approach is the futurist approach. This, this is perhaps the most common today. And it is, the, uh, it is that most of the book belongs in the future. We haven't yet seen the fulfillment of it. That the prophecies that are there in the book of Revelation are to be fulfilled just before, during, or after Jesus' return. But some of the difficulty with this approach is, of course, that it makes everything after chapter 3 really irrelevant except for one generation of believers, right? So, so if that's true then the, you have the first three chapters, and then chapter four, it's relevant only to the, that generation for which those events are going to unfold. And so that's one difficulty there. And the key question for this approach, the futurist approach, is how close are we then to chapter four? Because as we're reading up to it, then that's where it begins to be a futurist. And then the approach that I want to talk to you about today, and I think this is very close, Um, Not perfect, but it's the idealist approach. And this is the one that I'll be teaching from today. 
So it's interpreting Revelation not as a book of history, not as just purely um, futuristic. It can be both of those, but the important part of it is that it represents the victorious Christ and his people and his church. And contrasted against that is the defeat of Satan and his underlings. And so the apocalypse is not a history of events that have occurred in the past or even a series of events that will be unfolded in the future. Not necessarily, but it is a book that fills God's people with what? Comfort and motivation to endure to the end. The idealists, and what I will stress in this book, is that it's a message that's applicable to Christians of all generations. It's for you, it's for me, and there's, there's, there's a massive amount of blessing and hope in this book that I want to share with you. So the key question is this, why should we have hope? Why should we have hope? That's what this book is about. And I want to just lay in the middle of this discussion, this concept. God is at the center of revelation. He himself is at the center. I mean, I think somebody said revelation is clear, so why do so many people have trouble with it? I can understand that. I think it's very clear, but it's not simple. It's not simple. It's not easy. It's very clear, though. But because we often start from the wrong end of the book— you know, suppose I start by asking, you know, what does the bear, um, bear's feet in Revelation 12, 13, 2 stand for? Or just pick on that. Like, just, you know, tell me what that means. What, is, what, the, what do the bear's feet mean? If I start with the detail and I ignore the big picture, I'm, I'm asking for trouble. Because God is at the center. We must start with him. And we have to contrast between him and his opponents. If we try to puzzle out the details, like, what are the bear's feet? It's as if we had tried to pick up and use a knife by its, by its blade instead of its handle. So you can get cut really badly by that. You know, you have to pick it up by the right end. And so we're, so we're starting at the wrong end. Don't dive into the, don't try to puzzle out the details or you will get lost and frustrated. You got to, it's, it's a picture book. Revelation is not a puzzle book. Don't be preoccupied by isolated details. Take the entire thing as a meal. Don't just pick and choose what you want out of it. Be engrossed by the entire story, the entire word of God. So we can praise the Lord. We can cheer for the followers of Christ. We can despise and detest the beast as we read it. We can long for final victory. That's what the book is about. The book is about final victory. John is not trying to give you a puzzle book. He's not trying to trick you. You don't need to sit down with the book and then like your favorite newspaper and a podcast and a globe and, and, you know, and try to puzzle it out. You don't need those things to interpret, to figure out what it means. When he's talking about locusts, he's talking about locusts, not Apache helicopters. Some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. I know I probably offended just more than a couple of you. When you, when you think uh, and you hear hooves, it's probably horses, not zebras. Why? Because that's the most likely answer. If there's a hoof beat, it's probably a horse. Yeah, I, I know zebras have hooves, but it's very unlikely that John meant to give us a picture of a zebra. Why? It's the most likely. He's not trying to trick you. John is not trying to trick you. It's a book of pictures. It's not a book of puzzles. Again, it's, it's clear, but it's not simple, and it's not easy. What is the book of Revelation about? Revelation is about encouraging 
God's people, encouraging all of us in the midst of distress, in the midst of despair, God will vindicate. He will deal with sin. He will, he will come again. And if you keep that in mind, we're going to be okay. We're going to be just fine. Guess what? Jesus is coming. And I'll just give you the, bury the lead right now. We win. Yep. I, so, so it's really hard when you're teaching something like this. There's always, and you know me, I love giving you guys practical application. You know, what's your one word for 2012, you know? Um, unity, stuff like that, like practical ways that you can, like, take away from here. And, you know, struggling, like, sometimes doing that. And, and this is what, what the Lord really spoke to me. Is the practical application for this is enjoy God's word. Use this study as a touchstone for increased knowledge and understanding of a book of the Bible that you may have marginalized. And God wants to bring in the full counsel of the Word of God and, and teach you all of it. So that's the practical application, that you would love Scripture more. If you want something really practical, you could just read the whole first three chapters, at least out loud, as it was meant to be read. You know, and first when I started studying that and I looked at the passage where it said, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. I thought, okay, well, blessed are the one who reads out loud. Blessed are those that hear and then those that do. Uh, so maybe that was an issue of like illiteracy. Like maybe just because they couldn't read that it had to have it read out loud. No, it doesn't say that. It says blessed is the one who reads out loud and the one who hears. If you read it out loud, you will discover there's something more to it than just reading it on a page. Now, I know it's going to be awkward, especially if you're in a dorm or you're at home and there's people in the house and all of a sudden they hear you reading the book of Revelation and they're just going to maybe like call somebody in for help. You know, like, help on this. Johnny's quoting Revelation. I can hear him. He's over there like talking about it. But honestly, you'll notice there's cadence. There's a rhythm to it. There's a lot that is exposed in the oral reading of the text. So I'd encourage you to do that. In addition, you can listen to our podcast, our Venture podcast. There's a lot of material that we're going to be putting out in addition to what I've talked about today that's going to give you more of a, like, a hook into some of these concepts. If you're interested more, for example, in how I arrived at the 144,000, I'm not the first person that came up with that. There's a lot of material that we can give you. There's some that's going to be conflicting. I will warn you, however, that if you just blanket book of Revelation, pot, you know, book of Revelation on YouTube, it's mostly garbage. It really is. A lot of really, really bad stuff. That's just not me like going, Oh, yeah, Pastor Scott, he has the right way. Everybody else is wrong. No, I mean, people that are just purely apocalyptic that are out there going, here's the world events. And if you, you know, if you see it this way, um, you know, locusts are Apache helicopters and all that stuff. You know, th that's, not, that's not our approach here. Our approach is that there's principles in this book that are applicable to us today. And we're going to look at those principles and see how they apply to us. As we read about the churches, for example, you know, they're real churches. They existed. That people in them, just like us. And there was a spiritual condition that Jesus is trying to address by foretelling both the, the real punishment, the real events that are coming, but also calling them to repent. And so as we look at that, I want you to see, maybe not yourselves, maybe you're not going to go like, I'm not a Laodicean, but yet you might be seeing yourself as a Laodicean by the end of it because there's a lukewarmness in your heart that God will begin to penetrate and pierce as you study the Word. So you will see some practical approaches as you, learn, as you learn more about it. And so enjoy God's Word. 
Let me just close by saying this. Sometimes that's application enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we study, we need your help. Um, God, your Holy Spirit is there to illuminate the truth, to help us understand and interpret the Scripture, the Bible says. Um, God, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real honor and a privilege, and it's fun to study your Word, but it's also a hard work. I just pray, God, that we would be a church and a people committed to studying your inspired Word today. And that's all that needs to be said. In Jesus' name, amen.